Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Scottish Mortgage. I spoke to Lawrence Burns, who a year ago became the Deputy Fund Manager of the Investment Trust. With the retirement of James Anderson at the end of April, Burns and Tom Slater are now responsible for the management of Scottish Mortgage. And they've taken over the management at a very interesting juncture as the market rotation that's been taking place over the past couple of months has negatively impacted the short-term performance of Scottish Mortgage, which is one of the questions I asked Baines about. I also asked Baines to give listeners a run-through of how the trust values unlisted companies, particularly when there's a sell-off in publicly listed gross stocks, which has happened in recent months. Baines also gave his views on China, And I also asked Baines to give his thoughts on three of the big US tech giants, the Scottish Mortgage Backs, and those stocks are Tesla, Amazon, and Netflix. So please do stay tuned for that interview following the first part of the podcast. I was personally very interested in the answers that Baines gave, as I am a shareholder in Scottish Mortgage myself. Well, firstly, me and Sam Benstead, the Deputy Collectives Editor, of Interactive Investor are going to run through a couple of news stories related to funds and investment trusts. So Sam, let's start off with the latest fund statistics from the Investment Association. Those statistics show that investors stepped up their selling of funds in March. In March, 3.4 billion was pulled out of funds, up from 2.5 billion in February, and this lifted the total amount of withdrawals from funds for the first quarter of 2022 to just over 7 billion. So Sam, what types of funds are investors selling? So crashing stock markets have really hit investor confidence and people are taking money out of funds. In the UK, despite performing better than global and American markets, there were outflows of about £550 million. A similar amount was taken out of European funds as the Russia-Ukraine war hit share prices. While most equity sectors posted outflows in March, US and Japan funds bucked the trend and actually attracted more money. The bulk of outflows were from bond funds, however, with withdrawals at about 3.3 billion. Inflation is terrible for bonds as it erodes the value of the fixed income that they pay. But one bond fund sector actually bucked this trend. Investors put £237 million into UK government bond funds. Gilts are considered a safe haven when stock markets fall. Tracker funds continue to be popular, with £1.2 billion invested during March. Passive funds now have £299 billion under management, representing almost 20% of overall fund assets. Plenty of investors are certainly seeing the uh, glass half empty at the moment, and who can blame them with the various headwinds that threaten to destabilise markets and indeed have been um, blowing stock markets off course. Uh, reasons to be bearish include obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine, inflation at its highest level in decades, and interest rates moving higher. And in addition, um, the bond market recently signalled that a recession is becoming more likely. And greater caution is reflected um, among interactive investor customers as in our top 10 most bought funds for April, eight of the top 10 contained passive funds. And a year ago, just four of the top 10 were passive funds. So to me, the increasing preference of passive funds reflects that investors are looking to ensure that their portfolios are well diversified and to achieve this, they are at the moment preferring the simplicity of a passive fund. While the trade-off is that investors going down the passive route are giving up the chance of substantially beating the market, there are, of course, no guarantees that an active fund will outperform. 
Moving back to bonds, as you mentioned, Sam, high inflation levels with the Consumer Prices Index currently running at 7% has led investors to turn bearish on bonds as increases in the cost of living erodes the income that bonds pay. We had an interesting uh, question from one of our readers recently who asked about inflation-linked government bond funds. He wrote into our Don't Be Shy, Ask II um, series that we published on the website and pointed out that he, towards the end of last year, he bought the Vanguard UK inflation-linked GILF fund. But over the past couple of months, the fund hasn't fared well, um, which, which the reader was quite surprised about, given that it's got inflation-linked bond in the name. So the question he wanted to know the answer to was why hadn't the fund provided investors inflation protection? So Sam, what's going on here? It was a great question and showed just how difficult investing can be. Mr. Ganatra correctly predicted that inflation would keep rising this year, but was caught out by the reaction from central banks. Last year, inflation was picking up, but there was little indication that rates would rise, as central banks thought inflation would be transitory. This made index-linked bonds one of the best types of bonds to hold. However, now that rates are rising sharply, this is impacting the price of bonds. But index-linked UK government bonds, known as gilts, are among the worst affected. Because of high demand from big financial institutions, UK inflation-linked gilts typically take a long time to mature, often more than 20 years. They therefore have high duration, which is the sensitivity of a bond or a bond fund to any change in interest rates. This means they are badly affected by rising interest rates. Investors basically decided that the prospect of rising interest rates far outweigh the benefits of an inflation-linked income, and so they sold. And our final news story concerns the Jupiter Emerging European Opportunities Fund. It was announced earlier this month that the fund, which predominantly invests in shares listed in Russia, will be closed. Sam, what details did Jupiter give when this news came to light? And do you think other funds with high exposure to Russia will follow suit? Jupiter said the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine has severely impacted trading conditions and negatively affected its ability to value certain assets in the fund. The sanctions on Russian companies and the closure of its stock market to foreign investors means that the fund is no longer viable and cash will eventually be returned to investors. I reckon this will be the first of many Russia and emerging Europe funds to shut. They're all facing the same issues and I wouldn't be surprised if the likes of Schroeder's Emerging Europe, Bearings Eastern Europe and Pictet Russian Equities followed suit in the coming months. All Russia funds are still suspended, so investors cannot preempt any wind-ups and take their cash out. I completely agree with you, Sam. I think there will be more fund closures, particularly if it's a long war, and by extension, the funds will then continue to remain suspended for a long time. I think investors, well, some may be prepared to accept a fund being suspended for a couple of months, but probably not a couple of years. Our fund manager interview for this episode is Lawrence Burns, Deputy Fund Manager of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Lawrence, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Lawrence, since the end of April, both yourself and Tom Slater are now responsible for the management of Scottish Mortgage following James Anderson's retirement. Is it very much business as usual in terms of how the trust invests? I've worked with James for about a decade on some of our high growth institutional strategies. Uh, And Tom Slater's worked with James for even longer. So as you can imagine, therefore, there's a huge amount of uh, commonality and shared philosophy. 
um, investment process and indeed shared relationships with the companies that make up Scottish mortgage portfolio. And, and so, so a lot of those commonalities uh, very much continue. It's a huge um, element of continuity here. Um, but the objective really does very much remain the same. Uh, academic research shows us that a small number of companies um, make equity returns over the long run worthwhile, a small number of truly exceptional companies. And so our objective remains to find, invest in, and support the world's most exceptional growth companies that have that true outlier potential, because you only need a small number of them to really work to make a difference to your clients and your shareholders. Um, and it's also to invest in them wherever in the world they are, so to be truly global, and to invest in them whether they are private or public. And that hasn't changed at all. What also hasn't changed is our time horizon. We think it's incredibly important that we're long-term in everything that we do. Um, it's necessary to really understand the potential of those companies. You need to be able to think about them on sufficiently long-term time horizons. You need to be able to be patient for the inevitable ups and downs that they always incur. Um, and so we approach our investments on a five to 10 year time horizon. And what this means is we're looking at maximizing uh, returns for our shareholders over periods of five years and longer. Um, and in order to do that, you know, there is a flip side to it. Um, we try not to optimize returns over shorter periods. Um, and we don't try to smooth out volatility. And now that does in turn mean that Scottish mortgage can be volatile and there can be times that can be unfortunately discomforting for us and our shareholders where we might be somewhat out of sync with the market as we are right now. But I think the key differentiating factor in many ways of Scottish mortgage or one of the key differentiating factors is being able to focus on that long-term potential to not be pushed off course um, and to continue to be patient and not give up on those truly exceptional companies. And so that's why, you know, really we see Scottish mortgages as most suited for those investors that are able to invest on that uh, five to 10 year time horizon. Um, beyond those points of continuity, I think the other one I'd highlight is that Scottish mortgage has always evolved over time. It's never been static. It never should be static. Um, we owe it to our shareholders to constantly improve, to constantly get better, to develop new ways of investing, to develop um, new methodology improvements, to improve our edge, and hopefully, therefore, translate into continued good returns if we can keep making sure that we also get better as investors as the years go by. You've emphasised the long-term approach the Scottish mortgage has investing on a five to 10-year time horizon. But I'm going to ask you about um, the past year as it's been a, a very eventful period. So a year ago, you became deputy manager of the trust. During that time, Scottish mortgages share price hit a record high last November. But since then, both the share price and the net asset value performance has fallen out of form following the market rotation that's taken place in response to rising inflation levels. Will growth shares continue to come under pressure or has the sell-off been overdone? So, so I think it's very hard to say when the mood of the market will change. Uh, Benjamin Graham used to say, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And I very much agree with the spirit of that, in that knowing how the market behaves in the short term is really very difficult. It's a complex system where a huge range of factors can matter and influence share prices on the short term. Um, and it's, it's driven by people's opinions and people's voting of those events. And that, I think, is really very hard to make any sensible prediction about. And so what we're focused on is looking at the fundamental progress of our companies and most importantly, their long-term future potential. Um, and you know, about this, we do remain uh, infused because we're continuing to see operational progress. 
Um, let's take the example of, say, Delivery Hero, the food delivery company that operates in 50 markets around the globe. It serves 2.2 billion people, serving markets from Argentina to South Korea. It grew revenues 50% in the first three months of this year, and it's grown revenues around fourfold over the last two years. Um, but over that period, its share price has roughly halved. Um, and that, that strikes us as interesting. It, you know, to your point, is it overdone? Well, we certainly think it's worth a lot more than the market's currently willing to ascribe to it. Um, but the question of when that changes, well, I think that becomes harder to say. But I think, again, that comes to the long-term time horizon, that we're willing to be uh, patient uh, for some of these growth companies um, and allow some of that uh, performance to be recognized in the very long run. And I think the other thing worth saying here is that, um, you know, when we think about growth over the last 10 years, of course, it's been a good period for growth. And I think a lot of that comes down to the changes we've seen in technology, the increasing digitization of our world. But that's really been focused around a few relatively small core areas, you know, retail, media, advertising. You know, and that's created huge behemoth stock companies such as Amazon, Facebook, Google. But you know, those are still quite small parts of the economy. And, and what we're seeing today is we're seeing the broadening impact of that digitization um, as computing power and digital technologies become relevant in a wider range of industries and start to offer the potential to reshape them. So finance, food, automotive, a whole new range of industries are coming into view there. And we find that very interesting. Um, in addition, I think there are two other areas of growth that are a bit different, even more different, I should say, from the past. Uh, the first there would be the intersection of information technology and biology. And this is really about taking the digital tools um, that have powered the last decade and applying them to the problems of healthcare and biology. Yeah. Um, one of our holdings, um, Illumina does genomic sequencing. Um, in 1990, the project was underway to sequence the first human genome. Uh, it cost $2.7 billion uh, and took about 13 years. But today, uh, a genome can be sequenced for around $300. And we're seeing huge improvements because of the computing power and the processing um, now being applied uh, to the healthcare and the biology space, giving us opportunities like Ginkgo in synthetic biology and indeed Moderna uh, in vaccines that have enabled this. And then finally, we have you know, the very much needed energy transition. The world needs to move away from the hydrocarbon area. Um, and, and needs to sort of go on a more sustainable path. And companies and, and the private sector has to play an, a key role in doing that. And so, you know, when we look out over the next 10 years, um, you know, we see that the world needs areas to change. We see that there's some of the tools emerging to enable that change. And I think it's our role as investors to support and deliver the companies and founders that can deliver that change. So is there arguably now more opportunities following this short-term market sell-off and in terms of recent portfolio activity, what have been the, the latest changes to the portfolio? Yes. So we haven't been making a huge number of changes. And that in part reflects that we're on the whole, overall, quite happy with the operational performance of most of the portfolio. Um, when we look at the companies operationally, um, most of them are continuing to go quite fast. They're well capitalized. And that means that they're able to weather any storm because they have sufficient finance to deal with difficult periods. Um, however, at the same time, exactly as you say, the current conditions also create opportunities and opportunities we wouldn't get in other conditions. Um, so, for example, we've been adding to our holding in Moderna. Um, Moderna, I suspect many of your listeners will know, is one of the key uh, companies behind um, COVID vaccines. Um, and 
it got that position because it has a technology platform called mRNA, which is a new way um, of approaching healthcare effectively. Um, and it's because it was so rapid and highly effective that it was able to pivot and provide a solution um, during the, the COVID pandemic. And now that same platform, that same approach is being applied to a whole range of diseases, dozens of them, um, from flu to Zika to HIV, even cancer. And so that potential impact, um, even though it's already been so impactful with COVID, is potentially very, very broad. Um, and you know, today, again, in these conditions, we find it hard to argue that a great deal of value is being ascribed to that potential. Um, you know, it trades on about five times earnings. Um, we're not big into earnings multiples, but I think it's fair to say that that's quite low. Um, it's got one third of its market cap in cash. And so we think the opportunity they have to you know, be one of the most important companies in the world um, really exists there. And so we've been funding up that holding as it's um, hit, hit different difficult periods in share price terms through reducing holdings in Amazon and Tesla, where they've held up a little bit better. I wanted to next move on to the unlisted part of the portfolio, which has become uh, more prominent over the years. Could you explain how these unlisted companies are valued and do their current valuations factor in the share price falls that listed growth companies have experienced over the past couple of months in response to rising inflation levels? Yeah, so, so I think that's a very fair and, and understandable question. Um, so let me walk through the process of, of how we approach that. Um, so firstly, we follow the international private equity and venture capital guidelines in terms of our approach to valuing our enlisted holdings. And this is handled by a uh, valuation committee that exists within inside Bailey Gifford, who are supported in their task by the advice of an independent third party called IHS Market. As fund managers, um, neither Tom or I have anything really to do with that um, process. Um, it's done at arm's length. It's independent from us or our views. We simply get notified of the changes after they've effectively been agreed. And, and what the committee are really trying to do is come to a fair value by which we mean the price we think we would be able to achieve if we were to sell these holdings today in the open market. And, and that's very different from what the fund managers, myself and Tom, might think they're worth on a five to 10 year view. It's about if we were to go out and sell them today, what's the best guess at what we'd be able to sell them for? And I think to your second part of your question, it's very fair to ask, well, how quickly are these valuations updated in volatile and indeed falling public equity markets? Um, and so firstly, the companies are reviewed on a rolling three-month basis. So the entire portfolio is always revalued every quarter. In addition to that, it's not all at the same time. Um, a third of the portfolio is uh, reviewed every month. And so one month you get one third, another month you get another third, and then the third month you get the final third. Um, so that creates some immediacy to it. In addition to this, as you probably expect, we have trigger events. So when there's an immediate change, um, outside of this revaluation cycle that happens on that rolling three-month basis, um, trigger events can cause the committee to look and readjust the, the valuation. So you know, what causes a trigger event? It could be a material change in company fundamentals. It could be a new funding round, a decision to take the company public. Um, or it could be a material change in the public market valuations that are feeding in to that fair value market valuation. So um, if you've got a company operating in one space and all of its public market peers have come down a lot, you'd expect that to be a trigger event to relook at the valuation. And so what we've seen in volatile markets is we've had quite a lot of those trigger events that have tried to make sure that the valuations remain fresh. It's, it's made it quite a, a busy time, I think, um, and the, for sort of our valuation committee. 
But I hope that gives detail and reassurance to your listeners and our shareholders about how the process works and how it's adapting to the changing market conditions. Yeah, thank you for explaining that, Lawrence. And I wanted to ask you about China. Has the trust been reducing exposure to China over the past year on the back of the government crackdowns that have been taking place into the technology and education sectors? We haven't been materially adding or reducing to our companies in China. Um, the exposure of our China, of Scottish mortgages Chinese companies is around 15% today. Um, now, we've been investing in China for a long time. Most of the companies we've invested in have delivered good long-term performance, uh, but this has been a very difficult period for those companies more recently over the last 18 months. And I think it's important to recognize that you know, it wasn't too long ago we decided to um, sell some of our US online platform companies, partly because we were thinking about some of the regulatory risks that existed in the US. But what we didn't do was, I think, follow through that thought process to our Chinese holdings. And I think in hindsight, we've, we've got to be very clear that that was a mistake it's looking like at this point. But And wherever the fortunes go from here in terms of the companies, I think it's fair to say we also initially underestimated uh, the breadth and severity of government intervention in the private sector and in the increasingly hostile cross-party approach from the US defense and foreign policy establishment. Now, I still think the companies we own have very powerful competitive advantages, very long-term market opportunities, but I think it's right that we sort of reflect on some of the things that we underestimated. Um, and, and that's part of the process that I mentioned earlier about needing to improve and always get better. Um, and we are now at least seeing strong signs from the government, including statements from Xi Jinping, that are signaling a beginning to the end of the regulatory tightening as a focus in China moves away from that intervention towards um, economic stability and economic prosperity a bit more again. So going forward, how are we going to deal with this? I think we need to pay more attention than we perhaps have in the past to our overall weighting within Chinese companies. And that's really reflecting that the commonality of risks are a bit different now than they were in the past. Plenty of column inches are written about the big US tech giants, um, which Scottish mortgages um, invested in over the years. Meta and Alphabet are no longer held, but in the top 10, there's Tesla and Amazon. And further down the portfolio is Netflix. Could you explain why you're optimistic those three companies can continue to dominate? And in relation to Netflix, has your view changed at all following its recent announcement of a sharp drop in subscribers? Sure. So, so let's take each of those in turn. Amazon, uh, Tesla, Netflix. On Amazon, we still think it's a very good business, very well entrenched. Um, you know, I, I can't really see myself personally sort of materially uh, spending much less on Amazon or shopping in, in um, a, a, a huge number of different places. I think Amazon is going to remain a core part of how people experience retail and how they shop going forward. Um, it has a long growth runway. E-commerce penetration is more mature today in the US, but that number is still only around 15%. And the cloud still remains a large opportunity. It's also a company we have huge admiration for. Uh, and so I think it will be a good investment for a very long time to come. However, we have been making material reductions in our holding, and that's come about to fund uh, new ideas that we think offer even greater upside from here. And there have been two reasons really behind this. Um, the first is that at a $1.8 trillion company, we've sort of looked at it and gone, we think you can still make a lot of money here, but can you still make the sufficient number of multiples to justify the holding size? Well, on that, we've struggled a bit more. The second is that not one, but two very key people for Amazon have, have stepped back. They've been Jeff Bezos and Jeff Wilkie, who was you know, really instrumental in building out the Amazon retail business. Um, the latter you know, might be well known, but he played a really key role. 
And, and so for us, it, it's a great company. We still think it's a great investment. Um, but that ability to see how you make multiple, many multiples of upside is a little bit more tricky today. And really, therefore, the reductions reflect um, some of the things I was talking about earlier in terms of that incredible opportunity set that we're actually seeing quite significant competition for capital in the portfolio that's leading to that action. On Tesla, uh, it's obviously they've been hugely successful and they have been and continue to uh, execute uh, phenomenally well on their opportunity. Um, they sold over 900,000 cars last year. They're growing that number year on year by around 60%, and they aim to sell around 20 million a year by 2030. Um, so that, that's a, a huge growth runway that they have. The energy business, and, and I should also mention that they're doing that at margins and profitability levels, it looks like, that um, haven't been seen before in the automotive market. Uh, the energy business is another big opportunity, um, but also I think one I'm really excited about is an autonomy. Uh, so Tesla have uh, now millions of cars on the road um, that are all, um, a large number of them are providing data due to the um, full self-drive technology that's in the cars. And that data is being sent back to improve um, the ability to do full self-driving, to do that self-learning. Um, and so I think they're really in the pole position to be one of the first companies, if not the first, to crack autonomy. And if they can do that, I think it's hugely valuable and they can leverage that technology across the transportation space. Um, yeah, again, I think it just needs to be emphasized here. Cracking autonomy, I think, is one of the biggest innovations, the biggest disruptions it would be uh, that we've ever seen in transport, like akin really to uh, transitioning from the horse-drawn carriage to the automobile. So hugely valuable for them. And then it leads on to the other aspect that if they can do autonomy, machine vision, machine learning for cars, can they do other things in the broader robotic space? Now, that, that's very early. We don't know yet. It's very difficult to say what the odds are of that. But I was quite struck that Musk now seems to be saying he thinks that the robotics business they're building could be as valuable as the car business. And so, you know, perhaps even to us, you know, quite surprisingly, even at these levels, um, we do see the potential uh, for a fair amount of um, multiple upside potential for Tesla and, and remain very, very enthused by what they've uh, achieved and continue to potentially achieve. On Netflix, we see them becoming the core streaming platform globally outside of China. Um, they have 220 million user accounts today. And in North America, they are increasingly mature. But the rest of the world is quite a large place and provides a very large and long growth runway still, I think. And yet we've got to remember outside of China, there are 1.7 billion households. And that's a lot larger number than the 220 million subscribers they have today. Um, we also suspect Netflix could have more pricing power than people expect. It remains a fraction of the price of a cable subscription, for example. Um, and now, you know, to your point on the recent data points, I think, again, they were a bit unexpected. Um, they lost 200,000 subscribers. But I would keep in mind they cut the cord on their business effectively in Russia and so lost 700,000 Russian subscribers in that same quarter. Um, and so, so if you net that out, it would have been a 500,000 uh, gain effectively. Um, but again, I think the growth numbers were a bit different from what, what we saw. And so there's a process there of, you know, what, what do we do when we see something that's a bit different from what we expected? We go back through our scenario analysis and go back and look at that long-term market opportunity, that 1.7 billion of households. And finally, a question that we ask all four managers that we interview, do you have skin in the game? Uh, yeah, so hopefully it won't surprise your, your listeners or our shareholders to know that SM is by far my largest equity investment. Um and I think the key point there for me is it's just hard to replicate what I would see as, as being uh, the advantage for me investing in Scottish mortgage anywhere else. 
Um, so, so if I wanted to go and own um, not just some of the world's best public growth companies, but some of the you know, real companies of the future, some of the private growth companies, companies like SpaceX, which is lowering the cost of access to space um, for a range of satellites and, and, and huge number of technology platforms, not just people being uh, put into space, um, or ByteDance, the company behind TikTok. I, I, I'd really struggle to do that. Um, I, I don't have... Uh, the check size required to um, go to the company and invest in them myself. Um, I probably don't have the check size to go uh, to Silicon Valley and find a VC uh, to invest in them. Um, and even the average VC might struggle to get access to some of the more uh, sought after private equity funding rounds. And even then, if I did get access uh, to a VC that was able to invest in these types of companies, um, I'd probably be paying about a 2% yearly management fee and about 20% performance fee. Um, and, and so when you compare that to Scottish Mortgage, where you get access to those same companies, but for around um, 0.34%, um, I think that's quite a big difference. Um, and you know, when I've told VCs in the past about Scottish Mortgage's uh, fee structure, that they have, in, in, in a very nice way, sort of literally chuckled at it, um, and then asked why we charge so little, and they then quite quickly asked for, you know, could, could I have a brochure and just see what you're doing around this? Um, and I think the point there is it's really quite hard to replicate the access to those private companies at the cost point Scottish Mortgage is able to. And so that, that's why it forms um, you know, such a large part of, of, of where I put my own money. Lawrence, thank you very much for your time today. Great. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you for your questions. That's all we have time for for today. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Next time on the podcast, our guest is Simon Barnard of the Smithson Investment Trust. So do check that out when that's published later this month. See you next time.